Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews 2. I'm going to read 1 through 9, and then Keeley's going to finish up with 14 through 18. All right, starting with verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just a retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that help that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because of himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Great job. Great job. When BJ told me how you were splitting that, I was like, she's getting propitiation, and she nailed it. She nailed it. She nailed it. You can be seated. Keely is uh, being baptized today, and so I appreciate her being willing to uh, help read the scripture today. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be able to come now before your word. Uh, It's a privilege to worship you with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends, with family, uh, guest today of Infinity Church, and um, we just are, are honored, Lord, to be in your presence. Lord, we uh, confess that our hearts are, are drawn to so many things other than you, that you are not uh, our top priority or our focus so often. And so, God, we pray now that you would, by the power of your Spirit and through your Word, God, that you would draw our hearts to you in a way uh, that we would focus on what matters most, you. Jesus, Christ, crucified and risen, so that we may know you. Lord, bless this time that we share in Christ's name. Amen. This summer, uh, one, one of the days uh, I really enjoyed while on vacation was our, our family had spent a couple days at Norris Lake in Tennessee, and uh, my parents were gracious enough to rent a, uh, a pontoon boat for that day just so we could be out on the lake. And so my dad and I went over to the marina where we're renting it, and when we got there, they said, I'm sorry, we have uh, we, we kind of double booked and we've rented out all of our, our regular pontoons. And I was like, what's our one day we could be out in the lake? 
They said, however, for the same price, we're going to give you this party barge for the day. <laughs> and so it's still a pontoon boat, but it's this double-decker thing with a slide. And I'm bad at measuring, but I'm going to guess it's 35 feet long or so. It was massive. And uh, it's just, you know, the, the five of us plus my parents. And so we look like, you know, it's like, what are we doing this huge boat? But we had a blast. It was great. And, uh, but I, I, got the, I got the biggest chuckle out of the guy that was showing us around the boat. You know, before they go, you got to show you all the safety stuff. And, uh, and at one point, he pulls out from underneath the, the driver's seat, this little bucket, and he said, and, and here's your anchor. And, and I, I almost laughed at him because there was about 25 feet of rope, and, and Norris Lake averages about 75 feet deep, and at the deepest, it's like over 200 feet deep. And so I'm looking at this little bit of rope like, what are we going to do with 25 feet of rope attached to an anchor? And then what was even more laughable is that the anchor itself for this you know, 35-plus foot, foot boat was, was like the size of a child's soccer ball and maybe, maybe weighed just a little bit more than that. I mean, it was this tiny little ball, and I just, I just laughed. And so sure enough, we drove out, and we were just going to you know, drive to a little cove and swim. And so we, uh, we get out, and I, I knew it was useless, but I had to just try it. Like, there's an anchor, so here we go. So I, I drop it off the front of the boat, and it, I can tell it's just like drifting underneath us. It's totally useless. So I just pull it back in, and we swim. And, it, and it's fine. It's not a very, not a very windy day. And so uh, the boat was just gradually moving. But it did. It gradually kind of went down this cove. We'd have to turn the motor back on and come back out to the middle and swim and play and do that over and over. Because that, that anchor was a completely useless thing. What we needed uh, was one of these um, trolling motors with an anchor. I know Hank Lyles knows what I'm talking about. I, I want one of these. Have you ever seen one of these? I, I went fishing with a guide one time. And uh, if you're someplace that, you know, an, a, an, an actual anchor is just not a good spot, they have this, you know what a trolling motor is? So it's off the front of your boat and can move it kind of real slow. Well, the high-tech one nowadays has a, a button you push that says anchor. And it uses the GPS coordinates or whatever. Hank can correct the, this if I don't have it right later on. But uh, it uses GPS to, to keep your boat exactly where you said stop, but, but not touching the ground, but because the motor is, is changing directions and changing speeds to keep you locked in that one spot. It's amazing. My, my dad and I only fish together about once, a, once, maybe twice a year, but I think that totally warrants us having a, a trolling motor with an anchor. Like, we need, we need one of those. And that's what our giant party barge of a boat needed that day. We needed uh, an anchor. Thankfully, for those situations, it, it, that kind of drifting wasn't dangerous. Like, we, we were fine. It's not windy. But, but we all know that if you're out in the water and you're spending time out there, drifting can be dangerous. I, I read about a guy who was out, uh, just uh, thankfully, you know, didn't happen to him, but he was out snorkeling uh, in Hawaii, and uh, before they got in, in the water and were looking at this, the, the, the coral reefs and all these beautiful fish, the guide made this big presentation about this one spot you can't go past. Because if you go past this one spot, the current is so fast, your body will be miles away before anybody ever finds you. If you just drift, it may be slow, it may be gradual, but if you get beyond this one spot, it can be life-threatening. That's the danger of drifting. We started last week in the book of Hebrews, and one of the themes we'll notice throughout this book are these series of warnings, big red flags, making a big presentation that says, hey, be cautious, be, be careful, be weary of this. And the first one we find in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the first warning of the book of Hebrews is to be careful about drifting. It says, therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So that's a warning worth paying attention to, not just 2,000 years ago when this was written, but to today, to don't deny our tendency to drift. Don't deny our tendency 
to drift. Drifting may be, may be slow, it may be gradual, almost unnoticeable at first, but there is a tendency in all of us to drift away from what really matters. It's easy to be complacent if we let our guard down. And if we do that, it can be dangerous. There's a number of reasons that can be dangerous. The first is that our culture has any number of swift-moving currents that can pretty quickly take us to a place that's unhealthy, right? I mean, if you just live, uh, just kind of going along with the flow of the world around you, you're going to get to a very dangerous place very quickly. There are swift-moving currents of just kind of this pressure of anger and bitterness that we see uh, all over the place, especially news and media and social media. There's a pressure to, to keep up with the times and your, your views on, on everything. It seems like every day has got to be shifting and changing. And, and our world has a very strong current that says, hey, truth is relative. And, and, if, and if you are, are trying to be anchored in a certain type of truth, then, then you're just intolerant. And so there, is a, there are a lot of, of, of public and loud and swift moving currents in our culture that if we're not paying attention, we are swept up in. In our world, our, our, our views and our, uh, our perspectives get shaped more by the world than by the word. So we've got to be careful of that. But the, the second problem, I think, the second, second temptation uh, for us in drifting isn't really a problem out there. It's a problem in here, isn't it? There's a, there's a swift moving current out there in the world, but there's a swift moving current in our own hearts away from the Lord. And it may not feel swift. It may be as simple as like, I don't really want to get up when my alarm goes off to spend time with the Lord, so I'm going to keep snoozing. Or just give up on snoozing. Just go ahead and set it the full 45 minutes later so I'll just get up and run out the door, right? It, it may be as, as simple as just, I'm, I'm not going to you know, do the hard things. I'm just going to take the easy route. I, I'm not going to serve my family today when I can just come home and put my feet up. It, it may be laziness. It may be pride. Whatever it may be, it may be getting back slipping back into a, an addiction or some kind of substance or, or, or starting with just kind of one of those things or one more image online or, or something that just starts small. It feels like you just drifted from right here to right here. But the danger is right here may be a swift moving current that takes you far away. What are the, what are the currents that are going on in your life and around you that you've got to be careful of, aware of, pay attention to, or else they will take you far away? What does drifting look in your life. I, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I, I, I'm, I very much uh, resonate with the, the song, the hymn, Come Thou Fountain, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. You know, the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander. Do you feel that in your heart? Do you see the way day to day in our hearts, we are so prone to leave the God we love. We've got to pay attention or we will drift away. That's one of the, the main warnings in the book of Hebrews and the, the big solution to that is comes from the biggest theme, kind of the overarching theme of the whole book of Hebrews, and it's that Jesus is better. Whatever your heart is drawn to, whatever it is that, that may be tempting your heart to be swept up in a current, the solution to that is to recognize that that thing, whatever it is, is it, it pales in comparison to Jesus. That Jesus is better than whatever swift moving current in your own heart or in the culture around you, is trying to persuade you about. If we're going to avoid drifting, we've got to be diligently focused on Christ, keeping our eyes on Him. And I think that only happens if we are captivated by Him. If we are captivated by Him. If I had thought of that word before I sent my outline to Lori, I'd have put that in your, in your outline. The opposite of, being, of drifting is being captivated. Being so captivated by Christ that we are anchored to Him. 
It never, it, it, the other thing we may chase will never be as good as Christ. The rest of Hebrews 2 essentially is aimed at that. It's captivating your heart, painting a picture of Christ in such a beautiful way that you don't want to drift. You want to be anchored to who this is, to who Christ is and what He has done for you. You want to be so anchored to Him that you don't drift away. So I've got, I've got in your notes, I've got four anchors for you to prevent us from drifting out of Hebrews chapter 2. And the first is this, the credibility of the message. This is the first anchor. If you're going to prevent your heart and your mind from drifting from Christ, then you've got to see the credibility of the message. Verse 2 starts this way in Hebrews 2. It says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So this is, starting a, this is a reference back to the Old Testament as God is speaking to His people. And so over and over again, God's Word has proved to be reliable. And the evidence it gives us is that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And so God has kept His Word. He has punished those who He said He would punish all the way through the Bible. And so He is faithful to His Word. And so he's making argument. If that was true in the Old Testament, he says, even more is that true now, that God's word is credible. Hebrews is saying that what's even more credible and reliable is the message we've received now, the message of the gospel. He calls it a great salvation. You want, you want something that's a bedrock? You want, you want a, a, a rock that you can anchor to that will never move? It's the, the bedrock foundation of our great salvation. That is never budging. No tide, no time, no season, no cultural movement, no opinion. Nothing can make that rock move because it is the rock of Christ Himself. He is our great salvation. And we, the way we heard that message first, it says from the Lord Himself. It was declared to us first by the Lord. Jesus Himself, as we'll see, God made man. He proclaimed the message of salvation. And the, the people right around Him, those first disciples and apostles, those are the ones who, who first passed it on to the next generation. So continuing on there in that verse, it says, First by the Lord, and then attested to us by those who heard it. So that first group of Christians passed it along to another group. And this is the only real hint we have in the whole book of Hebrews about who wrote this book. We don't know who wrote this book. But we know it wasn't one of the first disciples. It was somebody that that first group of disciples told. So we're like one generation removed. But the evidence is still coming right there from that first generation. And then the third affirmation he gives of this message, it says, While God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he gives three things. Jesus himself, the first apostles, and the miracles God does, all as a way of saying, you can count on this message. This message of salvation is credible. It's reliable. It is, it is something you can bank your life on. You can anchor your life to it today. And that is so relevant in our culture, isn't it? Because our culture says the opposite, that, that you can't trust this Bible. It is 2,000 years old, and, and how do you even know where it came from? And, and can ask kind of all kinds of doubting questions about it. But we have a testimony here that is incredibly reliable and credible. This is an incredible book that we have because of what God has done and has shown us who He is. Uh, others will, will try to either they denounce the Bible or say, hey, you know what, if God really wants to be who He says He is and say that about Himself, then He should be giving us other miracles. Where, where did the miracles go? God doesn't need to prove anything to us. He has taken great lengths to prove Himself already to us. God, God took a group of you know, 12 men minus Judas, so 11 men who were cowards on the day of crucifixion, right? Like they scattered and left Him. And in a short amount of time, took those same guys 
and made them champions who were willing to lay down their life for this message. And, and the story they kept telling over and over again is that the very first people who witnessed an empty tomb were people whose voice was not credible in a court of law, a group of women. Women's story was not credible in their times for going in, into law. And yet these guys kept saying the first people that saw this were women. And these guys went from being cowards to being willing to die for their faith. Within a few short generations, and one of, one of the first people who, who, who saw Jesus one, in that first generation was a man named Saul who becomes Paul. He goes from being a leading persecutor to a leader of the church, and he tells a group of people that five, over 500 people saw this risen Christ. And, and if some of them are alive today, so you can go talk to them about it. These, this, they were making claims that if we're false, would have died before the next generation. There's no way this would have been passed on. And yet, just a few generations later, the entire Roman Empire is spread with the gospel of Christ. This is a credible message. You can count on this. This is gospel truth. And it's something you can anchor your life to. The second anchor we see in Hebrews is this. There is comfort in the incarnation. Comfort of Jesus' incarnation. So as Hebrews lays out this message, it then tells us about who He is, about who Christ is, that He is God with us. God with us. Hebrews quotes one of my favorite psalms, Psalm chapter 8, uh, here in, in Hebrews 2. And I, I preached this uh, a little over a year ago in, in the summer last year. And it, that psalm starts with David, probably out you know, in Jerusalem, looking up at the stars and the moon. And he's overwhelmed by the sense of God's majesty and His smallness. You ever had that feeling? He, he feels gloriously insignificant, looking at the majesty of God's creation. He says, what, what is a man that you are mindful of him? Why do you care about us? Looking at all that you have, God, all that you could, you could be so much more focused on, who are we compared to all the galaxies? But then Psalm 8, quoted here in verse 7, goes on to say, even given our, our relatively small insignificance, God has made us significant in His eyes. God has given us a special place in His created order. It says we're a little bit lower than the angels, so we don't have the, the full presence of God yet like the angels do, but we are crowned with glory and honor. So this is talking about our unique place in creation that we alone are created in God's image. We alone are created to rule and have dominion over the earth, to steward the earth. And so Hebrews 2, quoting Psalm 8, reminds us of our unique place in creation to say, that we are special in God's eyes. And then Hebrews 2 takes it a step even further about our place in the world. Verse 9, speaking of Jesus, says, Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So it's a big deal that God is mindful of us at all. But you know what's an even bigger deal? God became one of us. He came to earth as a man. That's what, he's communi that's what Hebrews 2 is communicating to us. What? incredible humility. Just last week we saw in Jesus, in Hebrews 1 about Jesus, and again referenced in chapter 2, God created this whole world. Jesus created, God the Father through Jesus the, Jesus the Son created everything. And yet He was willing to come and be one of us. He gave up His throne in heaven to come and be one of us. What incredible grace. This is emphasized over and over again in the chapter. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children, of flesh, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He's emphasized this wasn't like a ghost. Jesus didn't come as, a, as just an angel that appeared like, like a man. What was that show, Touched by an Angel? You know, they look like people, 
They weren't really, they were angels. Jesus was really a man. He had flesh and blood. He wasn't, he wasn't any kind of other creation or, or robot or animal. He was fully a man. He had flesh and blood. And again, verse 17, made like his brothers in every respect. So why did he do that? Why was Jesus trying to do that? Verse 18, the one at the very end of this chapter that Keely just read for us, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help us, those of us who are being, when we are being tempted. tempted. This is the comfort that Hebrews is meant to give us. He, he's saying, you've got, a, you've got a rock solid truth, a message you can count on. And that message is that Jesus came to be here for when you need him. He is here for you when you need him. If you've ever gone through something hard, if you've ever been through a challenge or struggle, and, and, and you find somebody who has walked in that path before you, Maybe somebody who's had the same kind of disease or the same kind of grief or the same kind of struggle. And you're like, wow, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know somebody else had been in this before. It's so much comfort knowing somebody who can be there for you. And that's what Jesus is for us. Jesus is not just some far remote divine being that knows nothing about what this world is like. He came and he walked in our shoes. He came and humbled himself to, be, to become a man. And he didn't just become a man and then live in some remote, you know, posh castle somewhere so that he could just, you know, pretend to be living the human experience. No, he lived an everyday life so that he could walk in the places we walk. One of the books I've recommended about Hebrews uh, is by a guy named Michael Kruger called Hebrews for You. And, and he drives this, this point home powerfully. He says, have you ever felt abandoned or lonely? Jesus can relate. He's the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says, rejected and put to death by his own people. Have you ever felt grief, losing somebody you love? Jesus can relate as he wept by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, John 11. Have you ever been lied about? Jesus can relate. He was betrayed by a close friend, falsely accused by the priests and ridiculed by the soldiers. Have you ever had money problems? Jesus can relate. He was poor and had nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8 says. Have you ever felt misunderstood, especially by family or somebody close to you? Jesus can relate. His own family thought he had lost his mind in Mark chapter 3. Have you ever felt stressed? Jesus can relate. He was so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that sweat like drops of blood came from him, Luke chapter 22. Jesus, Jesus has been where you're at. Jesus has walked the path that you're walking in life. It is a, a false uh, statement, a false current that goes in our world to say, God, God doesn't know my life. It, it can be a temptation that comes up in your own heart to say, God, you, you don't know what it's like, God, and, and you, you haven't been here. You haven't gone through what I've gone through. No, he, he, he has gone through more than you have gone through. He has gone through significantly more than we have gone through. You know how temptation works? The longer you resist temptation, the harder it gets so none of us have faced as much temptation as Jesus because he never gave in. We gave in at you know, this point, and Jesus, the pressure kept building, kept building, and he never gave in. Jesus has been through way more than any of us has ever been through, and he can relate to what you're going through. That's what, in verse 10, it has this kind of confusing phrase about how Jesus was made perfect through suffering. That's not talking about his moral character. Jesus has always been righteous, but what it's saying, he is our perfect high priest. He is made perfectly relatable through his suffering so that we can know what he is like. You and I, we have somebody can, we can relate to in Christ. He's our brother and he's our high priest. In the Old Testament, 
uh, the high priest was the one who went before God in the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice in our, in our place. And Jesus is saying he's the perfect high priest. That's what Hebrews is saying about Jesus. He's our brother. He's made like us. And he did that so he could save us. He did that so he could save us. The comfort of, our, of the incarnation comes from, from trusting in who Jesus is and leads us to our third anchor, the glory of the crucifixion. The glory of the crucifixion. Now that sounds pretty contradictory. If you had ever seen what a crucifixion was like, nobody uh, who had witnessed a crucifixion would have called it glorious. It was gory, not glorious. It was intentionally devised as a form of execution that was painful, agonizing, and shameful. It was meant to bring as much shame as it was to bring as, as, as much pain uh, as it was to bring shame. Looking back on Hebrews 2 as a way it quotes Psalm 8, we can see the reason why Jesus went this way. He went this way. He died a shameful death so that He could bring us to glory. He did this so that we could be with Him. Hebrews uh, 2, quoting Psalm 8, talks about how everything is in subjection under His feet. So that means God intended for you and me to rule over the world. How are we doing at that? <laughs> Not so great, right? All the way back to Genesis 3, when we gave in to a, a serpent, we gave up our rule and our dominion over the world. What, what, what happened? It wasn't the birds you know, rebelled or the sun boycotted. We are the ones who broke creation. We're the ones who, who messed it up. But what God's Word tells us is where we failed, Jesus succeeded. The reason we are not ruling over creation, the reason we don't have stewardship over the world, is verse 9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. We, we failed, but Jesus succeeded. And how did He do it? He did it by dying. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. That is what's glorious about the crucifixion, is that it was the crucifixion you and I deserved to die. He went through shame so that we could go to glory. And verse 14 says, Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus' crucifixion killed the devil with his own sword. The devil used death as a way of defeating us, his enemies. But now, because of what Christ has done, death has no power over us. In fact, it says we are, we are set free from a captivity, a lifelong captivity. To deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to a lifelong slavery. The, the, the case can't be overstated for, for how bad death is. If, if all there is to life is a few short decades and then we're dead and nothing else happens, what's the point? There is no purpose to it. Unbelievers can kind of distract themselves for a while to say, hey, I, you know, I'm just going to make the best of what I got. But in Christ, we recognize how important this is. If death is the end, that's, that's it. But Jesus has made a way for death to not be the last part of the story. He has defeated death once and for all. Jesus is our great high priest. I mentioned that, that he goes before the Father on our behalf. But what's unique about Jesus is he isn't just the one who, who you know, the high priest would have taken a, a lamb or something from the worshiper and brought it to God and, and offered it as a sacrifice. But what Jesus is, the way he is our, our perfect high priest, he's not just the, the priest, he himself is the sacrifice. He didn't just lay down under somebody else's lamb. He became the spotless and eternal lamb offered up in our place. That paid a debt we owed. It was a perfect sacrifice so that we 
could be in relationship with God. Death no longer has hold on us. The grave no longer has hold of us. Devil no longer has power over us. We have life and life eternal because of Christ. That's what we celebrate today in baptism. We celebrate that just as Christ was up on the cross, crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected, so too we stand with Christ. We are, our sins are paid for, and we are resurrected, brought out of the water in the newness of life. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. And that's the glory of the crucifixion. People have compared Jesus to a lawyer who goes uh, into the court of law before us and defends our case. And because we are guilty, he goes and he serves the sentence in our place. He goes and receives the capital punishment we deserved and does it in our place. The ESV translation that we're using gives that word that, that, that Keeley nailed a minute ago, the word propitiation. If you're holding an NIV or, or New Living, it'll give you um, atonement or sacrifice. But, uh, and, and for a little while, I was like, why is the ESV being complicated? But then the more I study, like, this is a good, good word, a word worth knowing. J.D. Greer and other pastors have, have used this illustration, so it's not, it's not unique to me. But to understand what propitiation is, imagine, have anybody been to the Hoover Dam out in Arizona, whatever it is? Uh, it's about 700, a little over 700 feet tall. Google tells me uh, earlier. And uh, so a little over seven feet tall. So propitiation, understand that. Imagine standing a few hundred yards uh, below the bottom of Hoover Dam and looking up at that giant wall on the other side with a giant wall of water. Propitiation is that wall breaks and you're standing just a couple hundred yards away and all that water is rushing towards you. And propiti- that, that, that is the wrath of God. You and I minimize our own sin and don't recognize the holiness of God. We think we're okay and God's not really that great, so there's only a little bit of gap. But that's not true at all. There's a a wall much higher than the Hoover Dam between us and God. We deserve way more than just that amount of water as as wrath poured out on our heads for all the ways we have sinned against a perfectly holy God. But just for our sake, imagine just that amount of water. Propitiation is right before that water gets to you, the ground opens up namely Christ crucified, and absorbs all that water so that not a a drop lands on you. You and I deserve to be completely wiped out by the wrath of God, and instead of the wrath falling on us, it falls on Christ. That's what propitiation is. It is absorbing the wrath of God. That's the glory of the crucifixion. It is taking that amount of water and saying, done. It is paid in full. That's what Jesus did when he absorbed the wrath we deserve to die. There is a, a prevalent lie in our world that says you don't need a Savior. You're fine. You're good. Just, just, just be a little bit better version of you every day. Just keep getting a little bit better and you'll, you'll be fine. Or, or the opposite side of that, the lie that we sometimes tell ourselves is, hey, you are a worthless. We'll say about ourselves, I'm, I'm worthless. I, I'm too sinful to be any good. I, 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 God, I, I'm so far beyond what God can handle. That, I, I, that God doesn't want anything to do. Those are really two, two ideas of the same system, the same belief system that bases our identity and our worth on ourselves. The, the kind of the false, uh, it's a good idea in our world of having self-esteem, but it, it, apart from Christ, it's just cut flowers. It's a good idea to have self-esteem, that you, you, know, you, you see yourself rightly, but apart from Christ, that, that has no roots and it's not sustainable. What we need in Christ is to see our identity in Him and who He created us to be. As long as your view of yourself is based on yourself, you're either going to be bump, pumped up with too much pride, or you're going to be totally dejected and have, uh, be in utter shame. But the gospel of the glorious cross 
tells us something that's far better than we could ever, ever dream of. Tim, Tim Keller frequently will say it this way. He says, you are more sinful than you ever imagined, but you are more loved than you, are, than you ever dared to hope. You're more sinful than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. That's what the glory of the cross tells us, is that this is what Christ has done for us. He was willing to die for you, to absorb the wrath of God, so that you could be with Christ. The credibility of the message, the comfort of the incarnation, the glory of the crucifixion, all those look back on what Jesus did for us. But the fourth and final anchor for us this morning is what looks ahead of what's still to come, of what's still to come. And I so appreciate the honesty of the Bible. Jesus didn't come uh, and live our trials and temptations uh, in, in his, in the, in, during this, his time, and then everything was perfectly made right, right? We still, in our day-to-day lives, live with things that aren't perfect. And verse 9 says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So the Bible is honest about our world being far from perfect. We are far from perfect in this world. It's not under control. We, we can't control hurricanes. We can't control terrorists. I can't control my kids. Like the world is not under our control, right? We live in a world that still needs to be brought into subjection. And Hebrews 2 says, no, we don't see everything in control right now, but what we do see is we see Jesus. Hebrews 2, 8, 9, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection, but we see Him. Because Jesus came and defeated the ultimate enemy, the devil, and took away the greatest weapon, death, then we can trust Jesus to deal with all the other problems in the world, can't we? We can trust Him. We can trust Him. So our fourth and final anchor that, we can, that can keep us from drifting this morning is this, is the hope of of Jesus' present and future reign. It's the hope of Jesus' present and future reign. Verse 5 tells us that God subjected the world to come, not to angels, but to us, humanity, and that we will one day rule in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's not because we're good enough and we've earned that, but because of what Christ has accomplished. We can live by faith. We can live with hope, knowing that Jesus will restore and bring everything to what it's supposed to be once again. The lie, the lie our culture tells us kind of goes one of two ways. To say, hey, the world's doing great and it's just fine and, and, and we're, you know, we're progressing toward a, a better thing all on our own, like leaving Christ out of it. Or the world goes the opposite way and say, hey, this world is just all about to go up in fire and so there's just no hope for it. In Christ, we say there is, there is hope because of what Jesus has done. He will remake this world in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything, yes, everything looks terrible so often. And yet in Christ, there is hope. As, as Christians, we can affirm that at present, yes, we don't, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But if Christ is taking care of the worst enemy, if he's taking care of the devil, then he can accomplish all things. Don't, don't deny your, uh, your tendency to drift along with the world. You and I can get so caught up in the lies, the swift moving currents of the world around us, and so caught up in the popular theology, whatever's going on around us, and, and in our own hearts, we can be so caught up in our laziness or pride, despair. We've got to be anchored to something that's going to hold fast no matter what's going on in our lives. No matter what the situation is, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how we're doing or how we're feeling, we've got to be anchored to something that is so strong it can take whatever that is. And the only source of that is Christ himself. He is the only anchor strong enough to hold us no matter what. This morning, as we celebrate baptism, what we're celebrating is that that anchor, Christ,
has done everything necessary for our salvation. In baptism, what we recognize is that the, we're, we're celebrating outwardly what Christ has done inwardly, that he has brought us to a new life. And that is the anchor we trust in, the new life we have in Christ. So the band's going to come and lead our, our closing song. And as they do, I invite you to, to respond to the Lord today. Where, where are you drifting and where do you need to be anchored to Christ? What does it look like for you to trust in him? And as we respond, this group's going to get ready to, be, to, to celebrate baptism and let this be a, a moment of worship for all of us, that we would celebrate God's, the newness of life that God brings to us. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing uh, to look to your word and see the way you correct so many of our false understandings. God, we on our own are sinful. We are so far from you. and our, our, We see the ways that we have failed you. And yet over and over again, you show us in your word that Christ is perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's our brother. He has come to be with us so that we can walk with you through all the trials in life. And so, God, I pray for each of us, whether we are new believers, mature believers, or, or people who yet don't know you, that, that all of us would realize you are our only true anchor that can keep us, keep us from drifting in the world around us. God, anchor our lives in you. Anchor our lives in your word and keep us closely connected to you. God, as we worship you now, God, I pray that you would captivate our hearts, that we would be more in love with you today than anything else in this world. I ask all this in Jesus' name.